From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Coming to you live from New York tonight and the famous New Yorker Hotel or Hotel New Yorker on 8th Avenue and 34th Street. And get this, I happen to be uh, uh, perched up here on the 33rd floor, just around the corner from Suites 3327 and 3328. Okay, so what does that mean? What is the significance of that? Well, for those of you who are familiar with the uh, the life and times of the amazing inventor, Nikola Tesla, Tesla lived the last 12 years of his life at the Hotel New Yorker in rooms three, uh, 3327 and 3328, and he in fact died there under, some say, rather mysterious circumstances in 1943, and uh, when his uh, a nephew arrived on the scene shortly after Tesla's death at the age of 87, uh, he went into the room and found the wall safe had been opened and a number of Tesla's papers pertaining to his, uh, what some call the uh, Nikola Tesla death ray, those papers were gone, which of course has led many to speculate that Tesla was in fact murdered. So just around the corner from that room, and I got to tell you, there is a strange energy uh, walking around the halls uh, at night here. I don't know. I can't say for sure, but I do. I just, sometimes when I'm uh, hanging around the elevators, uh, I feel the sense that I'm being watched. Is it the ghost of Nikola Tesla? I don't know. Uh, having said that, welcome aboard. Hope you'll stay with us for the uh, for the duration of the show. Now, let me explain something. Uh, sometimes Skype is wonderful, and sometimes Skype uh, can um, have some problems. So, if for any reason I start to flit in and out of your reality, not unlike the USS Eldridge, uh, speaking of 1943, um, I have... Uh, entrusted you to an individual you're in good hands let me put it that way my uh, my good friend from zeland communications zeland news network victor vigiani is sitting in the air chair tonight back in our toronto studios victor how are you my friend just fine richard and standing by to catch the pieces <laughs> i hope so because uh well let's just hope that skype holds out for sure and um, if i do happen to drop off then victor it's your show how are you feeling tonight? Just fine, just fine. Quite an honor to, to be here in the big chair and you way off there in the, in the fringes. Hope you're having we're gonna, fun. We're gonna, we're gonna take you out of your, your UFO, your UFO box because mm-hmm. we're gonna welcome, um, uh, a very interesting gentleman who's actually coming to Toronto on, uh, November the 16th. He's, um, this is a real rare opportunity. Uh, G. Edward Griffin is going to be in town Friday, November the 16th, and he's presenting a lecture entitled A Second Look at the United Nations, The New World Order. And uh, as the evening progresses, I'll tell you a little bit more, but it's presented by our good friends at Conspiracy Culture, Patrick and Kadena, down on, uh, on Queen Street. And I will be hosting a great uh, honor to be uh, hosting uh, Edward, as uh, he delivers this lecture, it's not just a lecture, it's a Q&A, it's a meet and greet, he'll be doing a book signing, and uh, of course, you all know Edward uh, Griffin from his uh, a monumental work, The Creature from Jekyll Island, the uh, Federal Reserve, a second look at the Federal Reserve, and of course, uh, we're also familiar with his uh, his work 
in alternative cancer treatments, World Without Cancer, and also The Capitalist Conspiracy, political activist, lecturer, author, G. Edward Griffin. How are you? Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Uh, well, thank you, uh, Richard. I'm very well, and uh, I'm glad your Skype is working. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, again, very excited to have you coming to uh, to Toronto on uh, on the sixteenth. And uh, just give us a little more details what what people can expect that evening from you. This 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 lecture you're delivering on the United Nations. Well, that's a good question because I really haven't put it together yet. But that shouldn't be difficult to answer in, in a sort of a general way. Um, as you may know, I've been in this. Uh, business of digging out uh, unsavory facts and little-known pieces of history. For a long time, um, I started becoming aware of these things in about 1959, and by 1960, I was in full swing. And my first book was on the United Nations, called The Fearful Master. You mentioned that. And, um, of course, that was very much a part of my life for a few years thereafter. And then I got into these other topics, some of which you mentioned, and uh, strangely enough, uh, there hasn't been enough uh, or a lot of interest in the original theme of the United Nations until recently. And so I'm really delighted to have this opportunity to go back to that topic because I think it's one of the more important ones of them all. And, uh, and so I don't know really how I'm going to structure this, but I can tell you uh, that the main theme of my book, The Fearful Master, is that uh, the United Nations isn't at all what it appears to be. That's all. That's so true of so many things in our world today. It's certainly true of the UN. I know back in the 1960s when I was going around telling people that the UN was not our last best hope for peace, like you know we all learned in school. Um, I was met with uh, some very chilling opposition because people thought I was attacking, you know, a great institution, the great concept of international brotherhood, and they thought that made me automatically a warmonger and, you know, all other things. But um, and the main, the main problem I have with the United Nations is that uh, people don't look at the real UN. They look at the mythological UN. You know, I have to tell you right up front, I have no problem with the concept of world government um, if it was the right kind of world government, if it was the kind of a, a system that guaranteed individual rights and protected uh, personal liberties and protected the individual against the, you know, the mob, against the majority and all that sort of thing, if it uh, guaranteed people the right to freedom of speech and all the guarantees we used to have in our own federal constitution, uh, that would be fine. Uh, but that's not what's really down there in New York today. It's not that kind of a international brotherhood at all. It's the building of a new world order, as these people like to call it. It's a, it's a world government, true, but it's based on the model of collectivism, which means it's, it's not there to protect the people, uh, but to control the people. The typical, uh, you know, we used to think in this country that the purpose of our our government was to protect us, to protect our lives, liberty, and our property, as it says in the Declaration of Independence. You know, when in the course of human events, it's time to break with the, with the mother country, and then men institute governments to protect their liberties. 
Well, that was all clear for a long time, but of course, in the last hundred years, that system has been eroded so that now the pyramids turned around and the government is there not to protect the people but to control the people and the people no longer tell the government what to do but the government tells the people what to do and that's the kind of a of a system that they are building in new york at the united nations it's a, a build it's a system of collectivism and uh, and it, it, if people really understood it, they wouldn't like it at all. So what I'll be talking about uh, in Toronto is that general theme. I'll be giving plenty of examples and illustrations. And um, I, think it, I think it's going to come as a shock to many people who still, still are thinking that the U.N. is a, you know, some kind of an international brotherhood of some kind. Uh, Ed, can we can we discuss a little bit in in, in this hour? And also, I, I want to give uh, people some uh, some details. Uh, first of all, it's happening at Trinity St. Paul's United Church. That's 427 Bloor Street West. That's only a five minute walk from the uh, Spadina subway station. Again, 427 Bloor Street West. That is uh, November the 16th. Doors open at six. The event starts at seven. Ends at ten. So three hours. Uh, with uh, G. Edward Griffin. Tickets are $25 in advance, 30 at the door if they're available, and it's uh, general admission seating. And you've got a few options in terms of, uh, of, of purchasing tickets. You can go to uh, Conspiracy Culture at uh, 1696 Queen Street East and, and, um, and, and buy them right there, or you can do it over the phone, 416-916-1696. And... Uh, uh, the, uh, if you go online, they also have uh, a, a PayPal um, uh, option as well at conspiracyculture.com. So, uh, Ed, the, the United Nations, I mean, this was not the, the first attempt uh, at, at this type of organization. They, we had, of course, the League of Nations, uh, which came out of uh, a World War One. Why did that why did that fail, and 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 then uh, and and uh, why did they think that they could do it, you know, differently the next time? Well, the literature on that is pretty clear. Uh, the the people that created the United Nations, as you mentioned, were actively involved in trying to create the, the very same thing at the end of World War One, called the League of Nations. It's the same group, basically the same uh, New World Order people. They had this long-range view of building the you know, international government based on the model of collectivism way back then. And they, to a large extent, they were, uh, they were instrumental in uh, making sure that the war, World War I, was as long and as gruesome as possible. Uh, some of these people uh, here in the United States operating through... Uh, the various uh, non-profit organizations like the uh, Carnegie Endowment Fund for International Peace, for example, uh, they actually drafted resolutions uh, to do everything they could with their influence at high levels of in government to keep the war going, not to you know, not to end the war, keep it going. Why? Because they wanted the terror of war and the destruction of war to be on the minds of people so that when it finally ended, they would be ready, ready to change their culture, change their system, make drastic changes to the American way so that we wouldn't have to go through war again. So they wanted to use the terror of war as, as a, like a battering ram uh, against the consciousness of the American people so they would be so afraid of more war that they would accept almost anything 
as long as it was sold as a means of preventing another war. So, um, yeah, that's uh, that's basically what happened, uh, what they tried to make happen. But uh, when it was all over, the, the American people still weren't buying it. And so there wasn't uh, all the politicians or the major politicians were for it, but the, the folks back home weren't buying it. They said, no, we don't want to surrender our sovereignty. We don't want to let other nations of the world tell us what to do and what is right and what is wrong and to levy taxes on us and all that sort of thing. No. So um, the, the, the planners uh, were very disillusioned by that. They thought they really had it made. And so they resolved right away after that, when, when the League of Nations fell through because of basically a lack of, of popular support at the grassroots level. They started right to work again. They said, okay, we've got to do this again, and we'll just keep doing it again and again until people are so fed up with war that they'll finally give up their sovereignty and give up their cherished uh, way of life, and they'll say it's, it'll be worth it. And um, this is all pretty well documented. And um, so anyway, to answer your question, the, the American people uh, were hit with the battering ram of World War I, but apparently it wasn't enough to, to knock, knock down the structures of our, of our traditions. They still were standing, and so they failed to get uh, you, the United States to participate in that. All right, uh, uh, Ed, stay where you you are if you could. Victor Vigiani, live in studio in Toronto. I'm on the horn, down the pipe from uh, New York City, live from the uh, New Yorker Hotel, as we talk about the United Nations and one world government. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Keeping an eye on the New World Order, this is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. G. Edward Griffin on the line as we continue to discuss the United Nations and the New World Order. Writer, documentary, filmmaker, many successful titles to his credit. He's listed on the Who's Who in America. He's uh, well-known, of course, because of his talent for researching difficult topics and presenting them. In clear terms, it can uh, that we can all understand. He's dealt with such diverse subjects as archaeology, ancient Earth history, the Federal Reserve System, international banking, terrorism, international subversion, the history of taxation, uh, U.S. foreign policy, the science and politics of cancer therapy, and on and on it goes. And he will be in Toronto for an exclusive engagement Friday, November the sixteenth. Uh, delivering a lecture, The New World Order, A Second Look at the United Nations, and that's what we're talking about here. And uh, let me throw it over to my good friend, Victor Vigiani, back in Toronto. Thanks, Richard. Um, welcome again, Ed. I'm, I'm really, um, uh, as I'm listening to what Richard just described and to what you said uh, just before the break, it, there seems to be implicit in just about everything that, you, uh, that you're saying and what I've read so far on your website that there's a litany of a sort of a facade hiding a certain kind of reality behind virtually everything that we hear. You know, for example, there's 9-11 as to what the government is telling us, and then there's what some people considered an alternative answer. Uh, the JFK assassination, you know, one story, then another. Um, are we alone? The government says no, and other people say yes. You're seen to be providing um, like a, like a several alternatives to just about everything that we know um, that's that's true historically. Um, who's the gatekeeper of all of this stuff? 
Well, that's a good question, and I have to start off by saying I don't really know if there is a, uh, a one entity or a sort of a, an alliance of um, entities or groupings of people. I suspect it's more the latter. But uh, my own research leads me to uh, focus on one, one particular group, which is more dominant in the Western world. And interestingly enough, it's a group that doesn't have a name. It was formed by Cecil Rhodes, and as I think everybody knows who he was, one of the wealthiest men in the world, dominated the, uh, the diamond mines and, and the gold fields of South Africa. And, uh, but what they don't know is that he created a secret society. And uh, we know a lot about that secret society today because um, it's, it was written, uh, the whole history of it was written by a rather well-known historian by the name of Professor Carol Quigley, used to be a uh, professor at Georgetown University. He wrote a couple of books on it, big, thick books, Tragedy and Hope, and the Anglo-American Establishment were two of his monumental works in which he detailed the origin of this secret society and what they accomplished and uh, still continue to accomplish. One of the startling revelations is that this secret society still exists, when when Cecil Rhodes died, uh, he devoted his entire fortune to the funding of this uh, secret society, and um, we we know a lot about it because of of what Professor Quigley wrote in his books, and also from uh, Rhodes himself, who wrote extensively on it, and also uh, from a, a fellow by the name of William Stead, who was or Steed, I never did find out how you pronounce that, S T E A D. But uh, he was the executor of uh, Cecil Rhodes' estate, and he wrote a book on all of this. So we, we have very uh, solid sources of information that Cecil Rhodes wanted to create and did, in fact, create a secret society without a name. And he didn't want anybody to talk about it, so he figured if we don't have a name, you can't very well talk about it. And even Quigley himself, when he was writing about it, referred to it as the Rhodes Group or the organization mm-hmm. it doesn't have a name. Mm-hmm. Well, we do know that the uh, that Cecil Rhodes consciously built this organization on the or, the structural principles established by Adam Weishaupt uh, when he formed the Illuminati. Well, we all have been told that the Illuminati no longer exists. It was at one time very powerful in, in Europe but that when it was exposed in Bavaria, um, that, uh, you know, all its members were arrested and the organization was uh, shattered and went out of existence. Some people think it went, just went underground and developed elsewhere in other forms. I don't think it's important that we know the answer to that, but we do know that people like Cecil Rhodes either continued it or consciously copied it, because he said he did. And one of the things I'm getting to here is that uh, Adam Weishaupt said that the way to control large groups of people, and certainly the way to control the world, is through a structure that he described as rings within rings within rings, meaning that in the center of this uh, conspiratorial group, what what it was, they called it that, uh, there would be just one or two or three people who would dominate, and then they would recruit around them a ring of other uh, members to form another group by a different name, 
and maybe 12 or 20, and they wouldn't know that there were three, maybe, in the center of that that were running the show. But then that outer group of, let's say, 12 or 20, would then form another organization, a ring around it that might have, you know, several hundred or a thousand. And those people would think they're the whole enchilada without realizing that they were being controlled and directed by, by this inner ring, and so on outward until finally you get out to the large masses of society, like political parties would be formed, and those would be big rings of many, many thousands, if not millions of members, and they wouldn't have the slightest idea that they were being controlled by an inner ring, which was controlled by still one more inner ring, which was controlled by still one more inner ring. Well, that was the rings within rings concept that Adam Weissup created so well, and he wrote about it. You can read Adam Weissup's own words in those papers that were confiscated there in the London Library. And Cecil Rhodes, in his own memoirs, said that he consciously selected that style of structure for his secret society. So um, what he did, and, and uh, this is where Quigley comes into it so well with his historical excellence, he details how the, uh, one of the rings, about the third ring out, uh, were, was called the, um, the round tables. They called them round tables. And those in turn uh, created an outer ring around them, which in each of the countries... Uh, the former countries of the former British uh, dependency countries were called um, the Royal Institute for International Affairs, and they're still there. You can go to you know Canada, you can go to Australia, New Zealand, uh, uh, and you can look up in the telephone directory. You know, you know, there's the Royal Institute of International Affairs. It's in London, of course, but in the United States, they decided not to use that name because they figured the American people were not interested in royalty. They didn't want the word royal. Uh, it had a negative connotation here. So they changed the name here, and they called it the Council on Foreign Relations. But it's the same outer ring of a roundtable, which is part of the Cecil Rhodes Secret Society. So now we, we realize that the Council on Foreign Relations in the United States, with about 4,200 members, something like that, relatively small, organization actually controls this country. Uh, they, those people are in the key positions of all of the major power centers of society. They, they control the political parties. They, they, their people are in control of the major channels of communication, the major networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, Turner, you know, um, Murdoch uh, Network. Murdoch is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. You just go down the line, Los Angeles Times, New York Times, Washington Post, uh, you know, it's all there. Every one of the major channels are in the hands of these people on the Council on Foreign Relations. Key positions in government, senators, most of the presidents of the United States since uh, Woodrow Wilson have been members of the Council on Foreign Relations or very close to it or, you know, they're they're key people. When they appoint people to go uh, to head up cabinet posts like uh, Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, you look at those names, Council on Foreign Relations, high percentage. Well, by that, I mean 70% or higher. And uh, Ed, look at Ed, is the game fixed to the extent that you cannot rise to the position of a president or prime minister or even win the nomination of the Democratic or Republican Party unless you are an affirmed globalist? 
I would say that's a, a correct appraisal, yeah, because these people have an agenda. This isn't just uh, like an employment agency <laughs> where they're you know, uh, promoting each other. You don't even get into these circles unless you have an agenda, unless you have an outlook. And that outlook is, as I mentioned before, you've got to favor this new world order. You've got to be a collectivist. You have to think that that's the correct uh, form of society, that the group should be sac- I mean, the, the group is more important than the individual, and that the individual must be sacrificed if necessary for the greater good or the greater number. If you believe that and uh, you can dedicate your life to that principle, then you're okay. Also, you have to be a little bit ruthless, too. If you meet those two tests, uh, you have a good chance of being recruited into this network. You ask me who I think the gatekeepers are. In the United States, I'll just summarize this by saying the gatekeepers are definitely members of the Council on Foreign Relations. G. Edward Griffin is with us here on The Conspiracy Show, coming to you live from New York City and our studio in Toronto, Canada. Edward, why specifically the the UN? Why have they chosen that organization to be the vehicle to usher in the New World Order, given that, uh, at least on the surface, it seems quite clear that nobody within, none of the member states can agree on anything, let alone, uh, you know, how how to run the world. Well, let's back up and take the first question first. Why did they choose that? They didn't choose it. They created it. It wasn't there that they had to look around and say, which one do we want? They created that specifically to their specifications. It was created by collectivists with a globalist point of view. Many of the people, right after the war, 43, 44, 45, when all of this was happening, they were uh, closely affiliated with the communist network. In fact, we had a lot of people in the State Department and the United States who, although they were American citizens, we learned later that they were actually members of the Communist Party. And they were uh, their real affinity and loyalty was to uh, Mother Russia, even though they were American citizens. We had a lot of those people. And, and, and the ones that drafted the U.N. Charter, people like uh, Alger Hiss, he was very active in that in his department. You look at all those people whose names you see on the staff of the... Uh, of that particular group within the State Department that drafted the UN um, Charter, they were, you'd be surprised at the high number of members of the Communist Party that were there. But that wasn't all. Uh, they were members of the Council on Foreign Relations. And actually, in, in some cases, like Alger Hiss, he was a member of both groups. He was a secret communist agent and also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. But the one common thing, whether they'd be collectivists on the right or collectivists on the left is that they were collectivists. They wanted this all-powerful government controlled from the top. The General Assembly, though, just uh, it seems to be uh, a free-for-all, and, and, and it's, it's hard to imagine how that organization would, 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 would be able to cultivate enough common ground for them to form a one-world government. Well, I, I don't know that um, I'm, I'm a little bit out of my league here to say that that is uh, they, they don't worry about it too much. I think it's part of like the show that's put on. Uh, when you look at the uh, the contest here in the United States between the Republican Party and the Democrat Party, uh, you think, oh, God, these people really are are at each other's throats, right? Well, yeah, but it's not on principle. They don't disagree on principle very much. They just disagree on who's going to be king, that's all. And I think when you look at the U.N. General Assembly or even the Security Council, 
you find that all those these people are are competing with each other and have a lot of disagreement. They don't disagree on principle. They just disagree on alignment. Which is it going to be the Leninist group or the Rhodesian group? And that's what we're talking about here at the UN. There's two groups there. On the left and on the right, the Rhodesians are considered to be on the right, and the Leninists on the left. And they're competing not because they don't want world government. They both agree they do. They're just competing to see who's going to, who's going to control it, which side. So I think if you look at the, the basis of the, of the conflict at the UN, you find it's, it's just a, a struggle for power. But on principle, they're all united. We'll step away here for a moment. We'll come back with uh, G. Edward Griffin discussing the New World Order, a second look at the United Nations. What I'd like to know is if, if uh, they had hoped that uh, World War I, the war to end all wars, would usher in uh, this, uh, this opportunity to form one world government, uh, are they hoping that uh, or are they planning on another major conflict to maybe drive that point home one more time? Is this going to be World War III? Is it going to be some sort of a nuclear showdown with Iran? We'll find out as we continue our conversation with G. Edward Griffin, Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network back in the studio. I'm coming at you live from New York back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides, you're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Victor Vigiani in studio from Zealand News Network, my uh, co-pilot in case my Skype connection from New York uh, drops off. G. Edward Griffin on the line from California coming to Toronto November the 16th to speak about uh, the New World Order in the United Nations. If you go to my website, richardserrett.com, and uh, click on the banner there uh, for the event, that'll take you to uh, a, a page where you can get all the details on how to get tickets and, and uh, the location and so forth. Uh, before I turn it over to uh, Victor Vigiani for a question, let me just follow up on that point I made before the break. Uh, we are seeing, uh, you know, we're hearing a lot of saber rattling again in terms of, uh, you know, Middle East uh, uh, war possibly with Iran. Uh, is is this again by design? Is this another attempt to uh, uh, to uh, traumatize people with with war and 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 have them more susceptible, more open to the idea of one world government. Ed, well, I think that's definitely that's partly the case. Yes, I, I but I add the word partly because I think there are other motives for the war. I think it has to do with oil, <laughs> has to do with dominance, has to do with the creation of the American Empire and the expansion of the American Empire. But the, uh, I think that the factor that you're discussing is also a very real thing, that uh, another war would probably just be more than the world could bear, and they would probably say, we've had it, I don't care, take my freedom, take my home, tell me where to work, give me a place to live, uh, you know, tell me who to marry, what to, who to think, uh, what to think, and who my friends would be. Just do all of that, just no more war, and that's... These people have thought about that. They're master psychologists. So I worry a lot about it because I think it might work. I think that the average person who doesn't have any knowledge of what we're talking about would certainly be easy prey for something like that. 
so I guess the short answer to your question is that it's yes, but there are there are probably several factors involved uh, with the what looks like a, a looming war ahead, uh, but that certainly is one of the big ones. It's it's interesting how we are many of us so willing to give up liberty for a, a little bit of security. I just remember that 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 line from Network Howard Beale saying, you know, I know the news is bad. Just leave me alone in my living room. Give me my steel belted tires, and I won't make any fuss. <laughs> yeah. uh, let me pass it over to my uh, my uh, co-pilot here, Victor Vigiani. Yeah, I just um, in response to I guess the, the entire point that uh, Richard just made. Um, and your response to it, Ed. Um, I'd just like to sort of throw out two ideas uh, very quickly. Number one, with something as um, nefarious as you're explaining, and it has, you know, deep roots and in, in sort of a non-belief system, and especially in the North American um, electorate, uh, number one, how do they how do they keep this kind of stuff under wraps? In other words, uh, why does it not become part of public disclosure or their discourse uh, and even disclosure? Um, and the second part of the question would be, like, how does the Catholic Church fit into all this? Are they sort of an, an acquiescent bystander? They're very powerful um, on the planet, wondering how they fit into. Well, I'll, I'll start with that one. I really don't know the the role of the of the Catholic Church, although I know it's it's powerful and uh, uh, and to the great disappointment of a lot of Catholics, the Pope has made pronouncements of late indicating that he's all for the new world order and he thinks that collectivism is fine and so forth. But beyond that, I, I just don't know. That's not my field. Mm-hmm. But I might add that it's not just the Catholic Church. You've got other uh, great religious bodies that seem to be going in that same direction. But the other issue is more in my, in my camp, you might say. Uh, I think they can keep this under wraps for several reasons. First of all, they don't keep it under wraps. It's just that when they talk about it, they present it in such a reasonable way, and they use phrases and code words that they don't really describe it the way we do. You know, when we when we talk about controlling the people from the top down, that's really what it is. But they don't say we want to control the people. They say we we just want a more sane society. We want rational people making rational decisions. And you know, by the time they're through describing the same thing. If you're not really listening too carefully, you'll say, yeah, I'll vote for that. <laughs> you know. So first of all, it's not really under wraps if you look for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but secondly, the part that is not, that you wouldn't want uh, if you were on that side, that you wouldn't want the people getting alarmed about, for example, the creation of uh, the North American Union, which has been going on very rapidly here, the, the merging of the United States, Mexico, and Canada, they just simply don't talk about it publicly. Edward, let me uh, jump in here quickly. We'll go to a break, come back and discuss further. Yeah. Ed Griffin on The Conspiracy right. Show. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. G. Edward Griffin on the line as we continue to discuss the United Nations and the New World Order. And again, Ed, coming to Toronto on Friday, November the 16th, 
if you go onto the homepage at richardserrett.com, click on the banner ad. That'll that'll uh, take you to a page where you'll get all the details on um, how you can attend. And you don't want to miss out. This is a very rare and exclusive event being sponsored by our good friends Patrick and Kadena at Conspiracy Culture. Uh, Victor Vigiani uh, stays with us in studio in Toronto, and I'm on the line from New York City tonight. Ed, we're hearing a lot, or I'm hearing a lot these days, about something called Agenda 21. Now, what is Agenda 21 exactly? Well, Agenda 21 is kind of a title to a large program that was developed in the United Nations based on the proposal that in order to preserve the planet, and we're back to this environmentalist theme here, Agenda 21, which really means the agenda for the 21st century, it was a proposal of how to use the issue of environmentalism and protecting the planet and sustainable development and fighting global warming and increasing food supplies and all of this sort of thing, which is, you know, very appealing. Uh, all, of those, all of those things are appealing and the, the people have a strong emotional attachment to them. But the Agenda 21 was a program to use those supposed goals as an excuse for taking away the uh, the rights of individuals, especially property rights, and uh, they, they make no bones about it. There have been documents, there are thousand-page documents available at the United Nations, and people have written about it. Uh, also, who are very close to it and who endorse it, by the way. And while while people weren't looking here in the United States, uh, the Agenda 21 has been slowly been implemented. It's, it's been filtered down, especially to the county levels in almost every county in America. And you walk into the county uh, offices there, and all of the little bureaucrats at the county are all buzz with Agenda 21. They want to regulate property rights. They want to restrict the number of roads. And they're going to tear out old roads. They're going to they're going to restore the land to its pristine state. They're going to uh, put regulations on the use of water. They're going to put regulations on the use of building, regulations on uh, commerce, all in the name of you know preserving and restoring the environment. And, and people think, oh, well, they just focus on the environment side. So isn't that wonderful? But they don't realize that what's that the other other side of that coin is that gradually they're taking the property away from the individuals who own it. Uh, if, if you can't get to your property because they tore the road out, for example, that property is not much good for you. If you can't uh, put a building on your property, uh, then you don't. You just walk away from it because you have no use for it. You, you don't want to pay taxes on a, on a piece of property you can't put a building on. Or if they're going to say you can't use the water that comes out of your well because that really belongs to the planet or belongs to the people or whatever, well, what good is a piece of property if you don't have water and so forth? So short of actually um, taking the property, what Agenda 21 is involved in is putting so many restrictions and regulations and taxes on property in the name of the environment that uh, they're literally uh, moving people out of the, of the rural areas and out of the suburban areas, which they say they want to do, and get them all into the cities. And uh, the, the excuse is, of course, preserving the environment. But what the real goal is, they want people crammed into high-rise structures. They want them on public transportation. They don't want them independent. They don't want them to have independent food and water. They want them dependent on the state for everything. 
So they, that's really what Agenda 21 is. And the first time I heard that, I thought, oh, that, it's not possible. But once I got hold of the documents and I read it in the words of the planners themselves, uh, yeah, then I became convinced. Now, uh, I've uh, been hearing that um, media magnate uh, Ted Turner, for example, has been buying up hundreds of thousands of acres uh, all over the country. And uh, is, I mean, is this part of Agenda 21? Is he going to, to put this in, in trust, I guess, for uh, as part of this Agenda 21? I don't know about that. Uh, I know that uh, people like Maurice Strong have been buying up a lot of property uh, in Canada and in the United States, but I don't think they really had original plans to uh, turn that over to the to the government. I think they just wanted to exploit the land and maybe uh, derive some pretty good profits out of the water that's underneath that land. Now, the United I do States know that there are one of the few countries that actually uh, 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 protects property rights. I mean, that's part of it. It's in their constitution. So yes. this, I'm gathering, is going to be a pretty tough sell in the U.S. So does the U.N. perceive the United States as perhaps the greatest obstacle, or its citizenry, rather, as the greatest obstacle to implementing this new world order? Oh, Absolutely. Uh, the uh, collectivists that dominate the United Nations and the collectivists that dominate the federal government and the collectivists that dominate the state governments and the <laughs> collectivists who dominate the local governments, including the county governments, see the American people, as, especially if they're landholders, if they're property owners, they see them as the enemy because they have been taught that... Uh, you know, the distribution of wealth is the proper thing, that nobody should have more than anybody else. In other words, they're, they're total collectivists. And so they look at people who have saved their money or perhaps inherited their money and they have some property and they think, that's not right. Now, we've got to get them off of their property. We've got to take that property from them. But that's not very popular. So we've got to find some excuse for doing it that is popular. And that's where Agenda 21 comes So in. I guess what you're saying is that liberty as it's been described since 1776 in, uh, in the United States. It's really an illusion. Well, yes, to a large extent, I think that's correct. It's, I know when I was growing up, I had a pretty false view of what the system was like here in, in America. You know, I'm like everybody else. I was, you know, red, white, white, and blue, and I remember the stories of the Founding Fathers and the Revolutionary War and the great principles of the Revolution and the and the principles that were written into the Constitution, and I thought it was still that way. <laughs> and here it was, I, I was growing up in the middle of uh, World War II, and I didn't realize that starting with World War I, they had already knocked a big chunk out of all of that. But they, they left the surface uh, while they were gutting out the inside. They were changing over the real nature of this country, but they left the surface there. They left the flag on top of the flagpole. They still, you know, sang this star-spangled banner, and everybody got that goosebumpy feeling, and, they, you know, a lot of patriotism going around, but they didn't realize that, meanwhile, we were becoming almost exactly like the very regimes we were fighting. We were becoming collectivists in order to fight collectivism. I mean, let's face it, uh, Nazism... Communism are ultimate forms of collectivism. And here we were adopting collectivism here in America in the name of fighting Nazism and communism. And we were becoming just like them. And I didn't realize all that was going on and 
till much, much later. And I think still a lot of people are in that sort of uh, state of denial. Uh, Edward, before the uh, a lot of these things can be implemented, uh, certainly in terms of the American citizenry, they're going to have to be disarmed. How do they plan on doing that? <laughs> there, are, there are several approaches to that. The United Nations is now uh, promoting a treaty, and by the way, so is the President of the United States, and he has endorsed that treaty. He said he wants to sign that treaty, and he'll probably just give an executive order, even if it doesn't get approved by the Senate. The treaty would dis- basically disarm Americans of small arms. It would be against the law to have them, unless you have a permit, and of course people who are like maybe you and I, might not get a permit because we would be considered as uh, dissidents and dangerous people, that kind of thing. And another way to disarm the American people, and it's underway right now, is if you can't take their guns, just make it impossible for them to get ammunition. (laughs) And uh, so now ammunition is getting very, very hard to obtain. There are a lot of rules and regulations. Not that you can't buy it, it's just that it's getting almost impossible to buy it. So between those two methods of direct illegalization of it and uh, making ammunition very difficult and too expensive to get, that's how they plan to do it. And the military arm of of this one-world government, will the U.N. have a powerful, large-standing army? Well, ultimately, they have to. But if they're smart, and I think they're very smart, they'll probably uh, just use the existing armies, but they'll be internationalized. You know, when the United States fought in the Korean War, uh, they were really fighting under the United Nations flag. And uh, when we go into uh, military um, confrontations around the world, quite often, if you read the lines in the newspaper, in between the lines at least, you can see, hey, these troops, even though they're American troops or Canadian troops or troops from, from, from uh, France, they're really under international control. They're really already uh, armies of the United Nations. And I think that's the, probably the, way, the, the wise way for them to do it, because if they send in you know, the blue helmets and they've got the United Nations emblem painted on the sides of their, of their tanks and their helmets, that's going to upset people. But you know, if they bring in American troops, you know, then they're here to restore order, supposedly, then nobody's so up, quite so upset. Uh, I remember a conversation with uh, Jim Mars several years ago, and um, he he, uh, he told me something that just left me gobsmacked, and that is that uh, during the Korean uh, conflict, the uh, of course the joint UN forces uh, were essentially being controlled by a, a, a Russian general uh, through at the United Nations headquarters, and that same Russian general was, in fact, also in charge of the North Korean forces. So he was running both sides of that conflict. Is, have you heard that? Is that true? Yes, that's absolutely true. I checked into that at the time. Up until about that time, the United Nations Under Secretary General for Internal and Security Council Affairs, I think it was called, or something very much like that, um, was a long title for basically the uh, uh, Secretary of Defense for the U.N., and uh, up until about that time, uh, all of those positions have always been held by, by Russians or somebody from one of the Iron Curtain countries. It was about 20 of them in a row. Well, I found out that that's because there was one of the agreements that was made 
when the United Nations Charter was uh, signed, the United States and other countries agreed that in order to entice Russia into the into the arrangement, they had to allow Russia to hold that very important military position. Well, they don't do that anymore, but that's the way it was for the first uh, 20 years or so. To think, though, that, that the same guy was running both sides in the conflict, I mean, that's a pretty sick game. Well, I'm not so sure that he was running the North Korean side, but he certainly was uh, in communication with him, and uh, he could certainly let the North Korean generals know in a heartbeat exactly what the uh, American forces were going to do because the American forces had to report to him and get his permission before they could do anything. What's the timeline, do you, do you think, in, in terms of uh, implementing this one-world government? To be perfectly honest with you, I think it's already here. It's not a question of will it arrive on February 12th, some year, at noon, they'll ring the bell and say, all right, the new world order is here. They've been building it brick by brick for a long, long time. And every week that goes by is another tier of bricks that are added to it. I think, in all honesty, we have to say we're already substantially in the new world order. It's not complete, but it's getting very close to it. Edward, really appreciate your time tonight. Look forward to uh, meeting you in person Friday, November the 16th. Richard, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to it. All right. You can uh, check uh, upcoming shows, past shows, everything you need to know about The Conspiracy Show at richardserrett.com.